From the textile mills of Danville to the coal fields of Wise to the tobacco factories of Richmond, workers have long rallied to songs of labor. The songs told of heavy work, unjust conditions, and struggles. And they were typically performed in the musical styles, the various musical styles, of workers' native folk traditions. Well, as we organized the exhibit upstairs, Organized Labor in Virginia, which is up through the end of December, and I hope you won't miss it, we asked ourselves the question, how can we do an exhibit on labor and not deal with the rich topic of music and labor? After all, American music has a long tradition that has taken up the cause of working people and their struggles for justice and fair treatment. And when we discussed how to bring the topic of music and labor together and, the make, and to illustrate the powerful connections between the two, it was clear right away who we needed to call here in town to bring this aspect of labor history to life. So fortunately for all of us, tonight we have with us three extremely talented individuals who will perform songs by such Virginia musical luminaries as the Carter family, as well as just those rank-and-file workers who filled churches, labor halls, and strike lines in protest of their working conditions. Greg Kimball is Director of Education and Outreach at the Library of Virginia. He's the author of a wonderful book on Richmond, American City, Southern Place, A Cultural History of Antebellum Richmond, along with numerous articles and essays. Greg was a curator and historian at Richmond's Valentine uh, Richmond History Center for almost 10 years. In addition to his academic pursuits, Greg performs widely on guitar, banjo, and fiddle, and has lectured and written extensively on Virginia's musical traditions. He's developed numerous themed multimedia performances, including Old Dominion Songsters and Virginia Roots Music. He organized the Folk Life area of the National Folk Festival in 2006, which some of you may have attended, around the theme of work and labor, and he currently serves on the Richmond Folk Festival Program Committee and is a panelist for the Virginia Commission for the Arts touring roster. Cheryl Warner was one of the first women to attend the Virginia Commonwealth University Jazz Studies Program. Her band, I love the name of this, Cheryl Warner and the Southside Home Wreckers, have recorded three CDs, including Lucky Oil on My Hand and Ride the Blinds. While steeped in the blues, she also performs a wide variety of folk music with well-known musicians, such as George Terman and Among Friends, an eclectic group of veteran Richmond area musicians. Cheryl has performed at many festivals and major venues, including the Washington, D.C. Blues Festival, the Landmark Theater with the Richmond Symphony, and the Tinner Hill Blues Festival. And finally, guitarist and Jackie Frost has played some of the best-known stages in our area, including the Carpenter Center for the Performing Arts, VCU's Performing Arts Center, and the University of Richmond's Maudlin Center for the Performing Arts. She's been an artist on the Virginia Commission for the Arts touring roster and has two CDs to her credit, Calliope and Cold Lonely Blues. Her music is grounded in a wide range of influences, from bluegrass to jazz to blues. Jackie is especially adept at tight, soul-stirring harmonies and performs with many artists, including the Big Boss Combo, John Conley, and Karen Trump. Jackie is also a fine guitarist, and her slide guitar playing will be featured in just a minute. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Greg Kimball, Jackie Frost, and Cheryl Warner, who will present we Shall Not Be Moved, Virginia's Songs of Labor.
I have my script? <laughs> it's all up here. It's all up here. That's right. I can just make it up. <laughs> you guys would know the difference. <laughs> um, thank you, Paul, for uh, asking me to do this. It's really interesting. The Working People of Richmond show, it seems so... Whoa! Okay, are these pages numbered? <laughs> it seems so long ago when I did that. And one of the programs I did with it was, in fact, a music program back in 1991. And uh, I thought I'd give a shout-out to my old friend Tim Thompson, who taught me a lot about labor music. And has since passed on, but... Uh, his influence remains. So, as Paul said, we're going to take a listen to um, a whole range of musics tonight. Um, we get this stuff from sheet music and old 78 RPM records and field recordings made by the Library of Congress. And you heard many of those recordings as you were coming into the hall tonight playing over our sound system. Now, tonight we're going to play our versions of a lot of these songs. But um, first, I'm going to start with one recording by an artist, a group called the Carolina Tar Heels. This is from 1928, and it's called Peg and All, about a disgruntled craft worker. So, kind of an amusing song. The protagonist of the song seems pretty happy to throw away his pegs and awls that he uses to make shoes, but that final sum shoemaker maybe is a sign that he's not that happy that the machine is basically taking away what he used to do by hand. And that's really the fate of a lot of craft workers doing during the 19th century here in Virginia as well as in America in general. One of the, uh, whoa, I did something really bad here. Uh, here we go. One of the, I think one of the really cool things in the exhibit is this cast brass seal from the Petersburg Benevolent Mechanic Association. And um, this was an interesting union in that it brought together groups of craft workers like shoemakers and stonecutters and other kinds of people 
into kind of umbrella craft union. But the people who were not really organized in this period, in the early and mid-19th century, were of industrial workers. And it would take a group called the Knights of Labor to finally bring that about in the United States for a brief moment. This is an organization that emerged in the 1880s. It quickly organized. It's hard to know how many exactly people joined, but probably about a half million people belonged to this union by its peak in 1886. And unlike trade unions, they would take unskilled and skilled, women, men, African Americans, and white. And they belonged to all different trades and occupations, including industrial jobs, which was a very unusual thing. They skillfully unified workers through a common heritage of fraternalism. Everybody in the 19th century belonged to a fraternal order. Some we've never even heard of. We know about the Elks and some of the others, but there were the Druids and all kinds of ones that have completely gone off the scene. And they used that language. One of the things the Knights did was to have secret signs so there was the symbolic wiping of the brow and of rolling up of the sleeves to, to sign to another person that you were indeed also a member of the Knights of Labor. And of course, the, the, the brow was from the biblical passage, by the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat. So we see that in this hymn, which was one of the great hymns of the Knights of Labor, in that it took hold the fort, uh, actually a, uh, a uh, religious anthem, but inspired by Sherman's message to one of his uh, uh, commanders that he was coming. And they then turned this into a labor song uh, that would definitely have been, been heard at the 1886 meeting of the Knights of Labor. The national meeting is here in Richmond in 1886. So we thought we would sing you a little bit of what's sometimes called labor's battle song to the tune of Hold the Fort. Hark the bugle note is sounding over all the land. See the people forth are rushing, oh, the charge is grand. Storm the fort, unites of labor, tis a glorious fight. Brown and brain against injustice, God defend the right. How the mighty host advances, labor leads the van. Knights are rallying by the thousands on the labor plan. Storm the fort, unites of labor, tis a glorious fight. Brawn and brain against injustice, God defend the right. Strong entrenched behind their minions sit the money kings. Slavery grabbers, thieves and traitors join them in their rings. Storm the fort, unites of labor, tis a glorious fight. Brawn and brain against injustice, God defend the right. Who will dare to shun this conflict? Who would be a slave? Better die within the trenches, forward then be brave. Storm the fort, unites of labor, tis a glorious fight. Brawn and brain against injustice, God defend the right. 
And here is an image of that Knights of Labor meeting in 1886 here in Richmond. And as you can tell, this printmaker, this print is in the exhibit as well. Um, and notice the little scenario down in the bottom left-hand corner where the white and black delegates are having a little bit of a drink together. And you see intermingled in the conventioneers, African-Americans as well, as their comrades in labor. And um, this was pretty revolutionary stuff, particularly here in Richmond, Virginia in 1886. So much so that when a black delegate, Frank Farrell, flouted the de facto segregation in public accommodations in Richmond, it revealed racial tensions in the movement itself. Farrell was supposed to introduce Virginia Governor Fitzhugh Lee, who we see here on the right, a former Confederate officer and Robert E. Lee's nephew. But Lee demurred, and Knight's master workman Terence Powderly was called on to present him. In the wake of this meeting, racial divisions split the Knights in Virginia and in the United States. The Knights also stood against the convict lease system and prison labor where basically people in the prison were hired out to do really some very, very difficult kinds of work. And um, the Knights, in fact, had boycotted the Hacksaw flour mills for their use of convict labor. Ironically, the classic songs of labor, many of them come from the penitentiary recordings of great folklorists. Um, men there preserved the songs of those who worked the fields, canals, railroads, the dangerous tunnels and mines. And here we see a wonderful image of a track lining gang down in, from the 1880s down in the bottom corner and a group that performs the Buckingham track liners up top. This, um, many of these recorded, recordings were made by a fellow named John Lomax for the Library of Congress. And you see here this giant hundreds of pounds worth of recording equipment that he's brought around with him because when he went onto a plantation or onto uh, uh, some kind of a prison farm down in here in Virginia, he was going to be able to plug in. And he captured some of the most amazing music, songs that we often call hammer songs. Um, and we're going to, again, perform one of these songs for you. This is from a field recording by Lomax. It's called Take This Hammer. And one of the things that's great about this song is that it's made its way into bluegrass and country and blues. Uh, you'll hear everybody, including Virginia's Stanley Brothers, perform this song. Take this hammer and carry it to the captain. Take this hammer and carry it to the captain. Take this hammer and carry it to the captain. Tell him I'm gone, Lord, Lord, tell him I'm gone. If he asks you, was I running? If he asks you, was I running? If he asks you, was I running? Tell him I'm flying. Tell him I'm flying. Captain got a big gun. He's got a big bag. Captain got a big gun, he's 
got a big badge. Captain got a big gun. Captain got a big badge. Well, I'm taking it in the morning. If he makes me mad, it was his hammer that killed John Henry. Was his hammer that killed John Henry? Was his hammer that killed John Henry? But it won't kill me, Lord, Lord, it won't kill me. Take this hammer and carry it to the captain. Take this hammer and carry it to the captain. Take this hammer and carry it to the captain. And tell him I'm gone. Just tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. <laughs> Another group of workers in Virginia also suffered from very harsh working conditions and lack of union representation. From the 18th century, coal was mined in Virginia, beginning in the large field around Richmond, in fact. Mines pockmarked Chesterfield, Henrico, and Goochland counties on both sides of the James River. In 1839, 40 men, mostly enslaved African Americans, were killed at the Blackheath Mine in Chesterfield County. Such disasters were an ever-present danger, and they still are today. When the bituminous fields of southwest Virginia opened in the late 19th century, new coal towns sprang up, including Pocahontas in Tazewell County. Here are two beautiful postcards, very picturesque images of Pocahontas just after it had opened as a boom town. But the reality and life of miners was far grittier than those colorful pictures. Deep in the earth, they carved coal from seams with hand tools and explosive charges, flirting constantly with death. African Americans from the South came to the coal fields in search of a better way of life. Immigrants from Poland, Hungary, Italy, Greece, and other countries settled in the camps, contributing their ethnic diversity and labor. The United Mine Workers of America organized in 1890 and took part in a series of labor struggles in the early 20th century. With the passage of the Wagner Act and then Taft-Hartley, these things assisted unions in organizing and finally put them more on a legal footing with the corporations that they worked for, finally gaining a foothold in the coal fields in the late 1930s. Just about that time, a very famous group of Virginians recorded a wonderful coal mining song 1938, the Carter family of Scott County came into the studio to record. They certainly would have known many, many miners and mining culture from living and playing throughout the coalfield areas of Scott County and the adjacent Appalachian region. We're going to do for you today a tune that they recorded called Coal Miners Blues. At this, by the time in 38, they'd recorded thousands of records. This one, though, I think is such a beautiful and special one, and it definitely shows the strong blues influence, probably of Leslie Riddle, who was an African-American singer and guitarist who had taught the Carters a number of tunes. So here is Coal Miner's Blues. Mm -hmm. 
the miner's blues Some blues are just blues Mine are the miner's blues My troubles are coming by threes and by twos will cave in and my life I will lose. This matter-of-fact statement reflects the ever-present danger of the mines. Memorials dot the coal fields, giving voice to those who entered the mines and bearing silent witness for those who did not come out alive. The worst loss of life in Virginia, the Laurel Hill disaster of 1881 in Pocahontas, is commemorated with a simple stone that you see here. Disasters continue to take their toll in the 20th century, and by, this is by no means a comprehensive list, but simply some of the worst disasters that took place. Interestingly, um, mining became far less deadly after uh, the late 30s when the UMWA came and rose uh, up and organized many of the people in the coal fields. The need to carry coal to ocean ports spawned several major railroad lines across Virginia. Running these lines could be just as dangerous as mining as evidenced by the many disaster songs about brave engineers involved in terrifying collisions. One such song is Blind Alfred Reed's Wreck of the Virginian, 
And yet another song describes a strike along the very same Virginian Railroad. And here you see the extent of that line. The Virginian Railway w began as a project to create an 80-mile-long short-line railroad for shipping bituminous coal from West Virginia to Tidewater, Virginia. When the existing lines refused to negotiate equitable rates, the investors simply secretly surveyed and planned their own line, extending from the rugged terrain of West Virginia over 400 miles to port at Hampton Roads. Despite attempts by existing lines to tie the new railroad up in court over rights of way, the line was completed in 1907. Running on this line was an engineer and talented musician named Roy Harvey. He and about two-thirds of the employees of the Virginian Railroad went out on strike in 1923, protesting unsafe conditions on the road. The Railroad Brotherhoods objected to the dismissal of 12 engineers and firemen for refusal to operate a locomotive which they knew to be in unsafe condition, and also to the policy of the management to operate two locomotives coupled together as pushers through a mountain region with nine tunnels, which meant that the engineers in charge of those locomotives were subjected to almost unbearable burden of heat and coal smoke that was almost suffocating. The U.S. Railroad Board tried to avert the strike and sided with the miners, but too late to stop the strike from occurring. And eventually, um, they w the employees were willing to accept the ra uh, Railroad Board's ruling, but the Virginia Railway would not. And many of the men who went on a strike lost their, their jobs for good. Roy Harvey was one of those men. So he wrote a song about his dismissal, and he's not happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Strike on the, the Virginian Strike of 23. This song features some special effects. <laughs> That were quite common to music of this period. In the dear old town of Princeton, in the year of 23, 500 railroad employees were happy as could be. Enjoying the highest prosperity and nothing to worry them at all. But they believed in Satan and quit their job this fall. They were told from every corner given good advice but they would not listen and now they've paid the price they've roamed to every country awaiting for the call to report at the Princeton Roundhouse and they've waited six years this fall are moving nicely from Princeton east and west with men of good ability while the poor boys take their rest their homes will ever be silent to the call boys daily call 
unless the Virginian Railroad will call them back this fall. I was one among the number that made the sad mistake and left my good old railroad job my engine did forsake and now I'm sure downhearted for I have no job at all but I'd like to run an engine on the Virginian again this fall First time those, ever. Those, the yodeling, the yodeling, and the lo and the locomotive sound First are on the original ever. recording. <laughs> well, as a locomotive engineer, my, actually, my grandfather was a railroad man too. He, Harvey really belonged to, to what, something that we often would talk about in the 19th century is the aristocracy of labor. In fact, they were some of the most highly skilled workers out there and demanded higher wages than a lot of other professions did. So losing his job for Roy Harvey would have been a very, very bad thing. And these kinds of unions were also the bedrock of Samuel Gomper's American Federation of Labor, which is also rising in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So his bitterness is really not very surprising. But Harvey's bad fortune did benefit later generations of music lovers. His recordings with the legendary Charlie Poole and his North Carolina Ramblers and his wonderful guitar duos with Leonard Copeland, including Beckley Rag, are really classics of the old-time genre. And he ended up working in a music store as well. While railroad engineers could usually count on the backing of their unions, organized labor remained largely shut out of the cotton mills of the South. Despite modest advances in child labor legislation, Work in the mills just got tougher in the 1920s. A depression in the industry precipitated lower wages and the stretch out, as it was called, making one operative ten more and more machines. Plus closer supervision, the imposition of piecework, and the restriction of even basic things like toilet breaks. All of these conditions eventually led to incredible labor unrest in the southern Virginia Piedmont in, the ni in 1929 and 1930. One of these disgruntled uh, cotton mill hands from Belmont, North Carolina, was so disgusted that he, he and his brother decided to go on the bum and go hoboing across the United States to try to find better work. May 19, 1930, found him in Memphis, Tennessee, down and out, and he wandered into a shop to pawn his guitar. There he found some African-American men talking about a Victor recording session being held in the city and he decided to try his luck. Auditioning for Ralph Peer, the legendary producer of the Bristol Sessions in 1927 that brought Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family to the fore, David McCarn soon found himself a recording artist. Even in the depths of the Depression, his song Cotton Mill Colic 
And colic here just means a complaint became a hit, nowhere more so than in Danville, Virginia. In September 1930, only a month after McCarn's record was released, the song sparked a controversy during the strike at the Riverside and Dan River cotton mills in Danville. The strike culminated a series of strikes that struck the southern Piedmont, including the bloody struggle in Gastonia, North Carolina. McCarn's song circulated widely among strikers in Danville. Luther B. Clark, a Danville store owner who had previously arranged recording sessions for several mill workers and who himself had recorded with the Blue Ridge Highballers, a local string band, promoted the record heavily through his store and arranged to have it played on a local radio station. A labor organizer witnessed, quote, a small boy, not yet in his teens, sang a solo accompanying himself with a guitar swung from his shoulder. The organizer recounted that, quote, it was called Cotton Mill Colic and accurately portrayed in comic vein the economics of the textile industry as well as the tragedy of cotton mill folk. So we'd like to play that song for you today. My banjo out here. No, no banjo jokes. At the end of the week, no use to call it. You're all that way. Beckon at your door, do they get your pay? I'm gonna starve, everybody will, cause you can't make a living at a cotton mill. When you go to work, you work like the devil. At the end of the week, you're not on the level. Payday comes, you pay your rent. When you get through, you've not got a cent to buy fat bag beef, pedal beans. Now and then you get turnip green. No use to call it all that way. Can't get the money to move away. I'm gonna starve, everybody will, cause you can't make a living at a cotton mill. Well, twelve dollars a week is all we get. How in the heck can we live on that? I got a wife and 14 kids. We all have to sleep on two bedsteads. Patches on my britches, holes in my hat. Ain't had a shave, my wife got fat. No use to colic every day at noon. Kids get to crying in a different tune. I'm gonna starve, everybody will. Cause you can't make a living out of cotton mill. They run a few days and then they stand. Just to keep down the working man We can't make it, we never will As long as we stay at a lousy mill The poor getting poor, the rich are getting richer If you don't starve, I'm a son of a gun No use to colic, no use to rape We never get rest, do we in our grave I'm gonna starve, 
love everybody will Cause you can't make a living out of cotton mill I'm gonna starve everybody will Cause you can't make a living out of cotton mill In response to the record's popularity, H.R. Fitzgerald, the president of Dan River Mills, pressured the local media to suppress the song on the grounds that it, quote, it was degrading to cotton mill work. <laughs> right. Um, and unfortunately, it dragged on and on and on, uh, well, you know, almost a year, and there was, unfortunately, some, some serious violence that started to emerge in the strike, and uh, finally, in November of 1930, the National Guard was sent in to Schoolfield, which was the main mill village there in uh, Danville. It ended the violence, but the animosity between residents continued for many years after. The owner refused to compromise with the strikers at any point, even at the behest of Governor Pollard. He evicted striking workers from company housing, further exacerbating the animosity of the strike. Finally ended in January 1930, with Dan River Mills offering no compromise except to allow some workers to return to their jobs, which the union termed an acceptance by the mill of unionized workers. Stemmers uh, in the tobacco factories were also a very, very exploited uh, group of workers, unfortunately. Um, they were mostly employed, but uh, these jobs were mostly held by uh, African-American women. And as you can see here, just as the earlier slide of the cotton mill, there were children, of course, also working in many of these places. This image is, by the way, from the 1880s. Um, but with the rise of the, CIA, the uh, as I said, the National Labor Relations Board, the Taft-Hartley Act, and various labor legislation that somewhat even the playing field, um, various uh, groups of workers started to gain somewhat of, a, of a, a foothold. Sometimes they were completely spontaneous strikes, including strikes of stemmers here in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And there's, again, some very nice panels upstairs uh, that relate to this particular strike in 37 and 38. And um, you can read the quote for yourself um, about some of the attitudes that some of the employers had to the workers. Um, Another, as soon as these strikes occurred, groups that moved in, including the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was starting to get off the ground as industrial unions started to be able to organize because of the sort of change in, in law, particularly, helping them to organize. And so um, several organizations came in to help these workers uh, resolve their conflicts uh, with, the, with the powers, the, the corporations that owned the factories. This uh, image is a, is a wonderful cutout figure on the left in the exhibition that you will see. So, um, one of the other things the CIO did, and again, this is a sort of ongoing problem, particularly here in, the, in, in Virginia in the South, um, was that um, they were very happy to finally to unionize African Americans. And one of the problems in the Virginia tobacco industry was there already was a very weak need uh, uh, AFL union, American Federation of Labor, called the Tobacco Workers International Union. 
And what ended up happening quite often is these two unions would, in an organizing election, all the African Americans would vote for the CIO union, <laughs> and all the whites would vote for the AFL union. <laughs> so this is continuing, continuing struggle. However, musically, one of the really interesting things about this strike is, and again, you can read it for yourself, this quote that's in the middle here, um, the writer of an article in The Crisis, the NAACP's magazine who attended these events in Richmond, uh, recounts going into a church for a labor meeting of African-American women and witnesses them singing several uh, uh, songs, including, as she says here, some that are religious in nature. There's a bright star somewhere every time I feel the spirit. But one of the other songs were tipped off by that last two lines. Mr. Alston is our leader. We shall not be moved. Ever heard We Shall Not Be Moved? One of the great labor songs. One of the ironic things is I think a lot of people today um, assume that some of those songs started off as civil rights songs, but actually they started off as labor songs before they were actually used in the civil rights mo movement. And then flipping completely beyond that, at the Pittston strike in 89-90 in Southwest Virginia, the great coal strike, those same songs reappear. So they become real anthems of both labor and civil rights. Like a tree planted by the water, uh, thought Psalm 1. This is a, where some of the, the uh, language for this song derives from. So um, how are we doing on time, Cheryl? Uh, it's quarter of eight, Greg. It's quarter of eight, so it's time for you to have to get asked questions. But we will sing this song. Promise before we stop. <laughs> so, um, we took a little bit of language from other versions of the song that we had uh, found, and also some specific references that are made in this article. Mr. Alston was Christopher Columbus Alston, who was an organizer for the striking workers. And there are several references to local people in it. We thought that would give it a nice Virginia flavor. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water, we shall not be moved. When our burden's heavy, we shall not be moved. When our burden's heavy, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree. Planted by the water, we shall not. 
not be moved If our friends forsake us We shall not be moved If our friends forsake us We shall not be moved Just like a tree planted by the water We shall not be Alston is our leader. We shall not be moved. Mr. Alston is our leader. We shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water. We shall not be moved. We're building a union. We shall not be moved. be moved just like a tree planted by the water we shall not like a tree planted by the water we shall not be moved sing it we shall not we shall not be moved we shall not we shall not be moved just like a tree planted by the water we shall not be just like a tree planted by the happy to answer questions. I know there's some microphones coming down the aisles. If any of you would like to ask me about any of the material or any of the songs. Yes, we've got a question over here from Carol. The Just a second, Carol. We're gonna re this is all being recorded. It's a little intimidating. <laughs> he, uh, uh, I think it was John Lomax recorded the song at the Virginia State Penitentiary. Was that the one that was here in Richmond? 
It was. He recorded both here in Richmond at the State Penitentiary, and he also recorded out the Goochland um, Prison Farm, which actually uh, recently I wrote a marker for that, which uh, commemorated the 36 uh, recording session there, which had some, both of them had some really incredible music on them. Any other questions right up here? Robin? Thank you. <laughs> um, I was thinking it'd be really good, really cool to get a, uh, to, to have you all record an album of work songs. <laughs> um, some of the material you're doing Thank tonight. You. And Thank you. I mean, yeah. isn't it timely? Aren't we all um, uh, struggling and all of that? I think we are all struggling. <laughs> yeah. No argument there. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and actually, um, I also did a program uh, for the Valentine Richmond History Center when they had their Great Depression show. And there's an incredible wealth of also songs about, talk about hard times of Great Depression music. And boy, was that ever timely. I think we did that show right after the crash. So um, I couldn't agree more. Um, maybe I'll convince them to get, go into the studio and we can do that. That would be fun. <laughs> I'll be all for that. <laughs> Any other questions? You know, this one, one group that we talked about in the lobby with one of our uh, folks who came today was the IWW, which just didn't really have much traction here in, in Virginia. And since we were really focusing here, we did not talk about the inter international workers of the world, the, the wobblies, as they were often called. But uh, another fascinating story of industrial unionism and one big union, as everybody liked to talk. And um. sure, absolutely. To what degree did um, organized labor did, did the unions use music consciously as a rallying, uh, kind of a rallying cry, as opposed to just sort of independents sitting around the, the house doing it? Well, um, I've, always, I've always felt, and this is true with the Danville strike, where you have this unusual timing, where this record just happens to come out. Um, I don't think you can impose music on people. <laughs> I think most good labor music is people singing their own music but injecting labor themes in it. So for African Americans to use spirituals as a basis for labor music, or a cotton mill worker, a guy who's really done this, uh, to be a popular song... Um, you know, this is also time in the 30s when the American left is very much trying to find a music, you know, to, you know, to create, you know, worker revolution. And they come up with these ridiculous things that, <laughs> that really have no bearing whatsoever on, on the average life of most workers quite often. I think the best labor music, and that's why I wanted to focus on that, was on music created by the people themselves because I think it, it, they understand their culture. There was an incredible singer... Uh, um, ballad singer at the Gastonia strike who um, was very powerful. In fact, she ended up being shot in the chest and killed uh, uh, she, because she was very effective at what she did. But she would literally get into the bed of a truck out in the middle of a, the street and sing these very powerful union songs, many set to old you know, uh, Appalachian ballads. And you know, there's nothing more effective than that. No one wants to know about my train whistle technique. It's a secret. They, the yodeling is the part that I really oh. like. And <laughs> yes, 
Bill. That was my first in public, I must say. <laughs> uh, was most of the attitude pro-union or anti-union? That that very I was I would say that varies dramatically depending on the time and the context and the and the group of workers you'd be talking to, um, and what did the union mean? That's the bottom line, right? If that, why did the Knights of Labor fall apart when white and black workers had come together to create this union? Well, it was because it's okay for me to go and strike with you, but I don't want you to marry my sister. So we have you know. A lot of these uh, movements, people simply, African Americans and whites did not see the same thing in the nights. They didn't see, in this, see the same result. And I think that's what often defeats uh, uh, labor movements. Um, you could tell Roy Harvey was pretty disgruntled with what had happened to him and felt the union had let him down. Um, that happens a lot after strikes, <laughs> um, not surprisingly. So it's really, really difficult to know. I don't think I would ever generalize on that. Um, I had this fight in my own family. My grandfather was a unionized railroad worker his entire life and swore by it, and my father had no use for unions, partially because he saw that there were still firemen on railroad on diesel engines, had no use whatsoever. You couldn't shovel coal. You weren't shoveling coal into a diesel engine. It's called feather bedding. He saw that as just the, the sign of the kind of the corruption. And I would, let's say this about unions and whether people respond to them. They're like any other organization. When they become too powerful, too corrupt, people see that, like the United Mine Workers right before the Pittston strike when they had to basically oust the person who was the head of that union. But doesn't that happens in corporations, happens in businesses, it happens everywhere. When, when any organization stops to responding to its core constituency, it's going to fall apart. And when people get power, that power can be corrupted. Simple as that. Do we have another question? No? Okay. You have a little question, Robin? Okay, Robin has another question. <laughs> it's, it was, my question is about some of the images that you shared, mm -hmm. maybe from the exhibit, but what you showed was an image of a, a record label and like a victor, there's a letter and then a number. So was each recording numbered and that was the indexing yes. method? Yes, what happened was, go back to Continental College. You have asked the right person this <laughs> question. <laughs> I actually have this record. And let me tell you, it's worn out. Somebody played this record hard. Um, the V40274, that's the catalog number that appeared in that you ordered it. You know, you could, you could go, go in a record store and you could, you, know, you could actually ask for that number and the guy would look it up in his book. Um, it doesn't show on the Victor labels, but there's also something called a matrix number, which is the number it's assigned when it's recorded, kind of that the industry internally uses to track it. But that's the catalog number for it. We don't, the library does not have very many catalogs. Probably the best source for that that's close at hand, I know it's a little bit of a drive, the Library of Congress has a great collection of early uh, catalogs of recording, um, recording artists. And I should also mention, I mean, we were obviously focusing on the labor aspect, but this kind of music wasn't even recorded by companies until probably right around 1923, 24. Before that, everything that was on record was what? 
What do you think that they thought was was good? Classical, classical that's right. Um, <laughs> classical, um, opera, um, uh, uh, Tin Pan Alley songs, you know, popular ditties. They had no idea there was any folk uh, market. And so uh, it was a com- they almost completely stumbled upon the fact that there were working people who would actually buy records by people like them. <laughs> And that, that's true of black quartets or, you know, what we t- today might call country music. Yeah, at the time it was called old time or hillbilly music. Those things d- weren't even on record before that time. So we got this little snapshot in the late 20s uh, and forward from there. Do you have any documentation about Christopher Alston? Because I know of a Detroit Union organizer it's the same man. Same man? Okay, it's the same man. Yes, exactly right. I'd like to talk to you about it later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christopher Crum- Columbus Alston went on to c- uh, c- have a long career as a, as a uh, union organizer. And in fact, uh, a fellow Richard Love, oh, we are at a historical society, so we should do this. Oh, by the way, the Pittston Strikers, again, I mentioned they use civil rights songs very effectively, including the Daughters of Mother Jones, the fe- uh, fe- group of females that did sit-ins. Here's my little bibliography. <laughs> uh, Richard Love's article, In Defiance of Custom and Tradition, is a great one on, this, on these tobacco stemmer strikes and would give you some insight into him here. And Richard later, I know in his dissertation, which unfortunately never got cha- uh, made into a book, he went and interviewed Alston, I believe, for that. Yeah. Great. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thank you. So- oh, Sandy, did you have one? Don't look at me. Keep doing this. I think I've got something. I don't know. Boy, I don't know. We just planned for this many songs. <laughs> You're scaring me. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another oh. really good labor song to do. Oh. Um. Yeah, we could do that. Who knows the words? Not Come me. on up. You want to sing for us? Cool. Nah? What is it? Can I follow it? You don't care? You just want to hear a song? All right. All right. All right. Well, I'll let you guys pick then, because I picked all the other Deep songs. River. That's Deep River Blues? Yeah, okay. That's oh. <laughs> kind of labor. Which has nothing to do <laughs> with anything. I was open, wasn't I? We just want to send you out of here with a smile on your lips. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone has to run Okay. Deep River Blues 
wish I'll go out on a spree when I got them deep river blue. Let it rain, let it pour, let it rain a whole lot more cause I deep river blue. Let the rain drive right on, let the waves sweep along cause I so much for coming out tonight. Thank you. Good to see so, so many familiar faces, too. Thank you. Bye-bye.